Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, Election Security and the Fate of Democracy in the 21st Century. Episode five, Is America a Fledgling Democracy? I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. On today's episode, I want to ask a provocative question. Is America a fledgling democracy? Not so much because I think that it is, but rather to allow a conversation that takes a more global perspective by putting the U.S. in context with countries that are emerging democracies. The U.S. and its European allies have played an important role advocating for democracy and providing election assistance in many developing countries since the end of the Cold War. But curiously, the U.S. often fails to apply lessons learned in the countries it supports to uphold election security in its own country. And the truth is, both old and new democracies often face similar threats to election integrity. And so I'd like to explore that more in depth. Co-hosting with me today is Bree Bong Jensen, the chair of the International Security Colloquium and affiliate of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Bree is an expert in international relations, international law, and foreign policy, and former staffer on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Hi, Bree. Hi, James. It's great to be here today. Great, thanks. And Bree and I are fortunate today to have as our guest Colin Cookman. Colin is a program officer with the United States Institute of Peace's Center for South and Central Asia, where he works to support, manage, and coordinate research publications across the program's region of focus. Colin is an expert on contemporary politics in South Asia, election management and democracy promotion, and previously worked as a contributing writer for the Economist Intelligence Unit on political risk and macroeconomic forecast for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Hi, Colin. Hi, thanks for having me. And I should add that I first met Colin in a basement office bunker in Kabul, Afghanistan, way back in 2010, when we were both working with Democracy International to support their election mission. Colin has since become a global expert on democratization and electoral reform in Afghanistan, with a publication this August of a report titled Assessing Afghanistan's 2019 Election. Bree and I wanted to have Colin on not just to talk about Afghanistan, but also what lessons he thinks the international community should learn from supporting elections in developing countries, and conversely, whether any of those lessons might apply in the U.S. So Colin, first of all, congratulations on the, the publication of the report, which I, I think, which I consider the most comprehensive review of the contemporary challenges of democracy in Afghanistan. And of course, we will link to the report uh, on the show page. But I want to start at the beginning, which is how did Colin Cookman find himself trapped in a bunker in Kabul, Afghanistan with me a decade ago? In undergrad, I, I uh, had an interest in international relations. My focus at the time was not Afghanistan, but um, after that, my first job in D.C. Um, uh, at the Center for American Progress, the think tank there, uh, I ended up working on Afghanistan issues. This would have been uh, 2008, 2009, at a time in which um, U.S. policy towards Afghanistan uh, in the early years of the Obama administration was a real high priority uh, issue. And uh, unlike a lot of uh, foreign policy journalists in D.C. Um, who sort of have to uh, shift focus, I uh, sort of drew the luck of the luck of the intern lottery and and have been able to maintain a focus on Afghanistan and Pakistan and the region. In the years since, I, I uh, went to grad school on, with a focus on South Asia and also met Bree there. And yeah, um, I think, you know, largely U.S. policy towards Afghanistan, it's been shaped by the war, it's been shaped by our counterterrorism concerns. But for me, I've been particularly interested in sort of the political uh, dynamics within both countries, uh, which tend to be overlooked. So um, 
at the time, uh, we were both uh, on an uh, election observation mission. That was my first chance to get sort of a firsthand look at these issues, but I've tried to follow them since and um, with the latest report, try and dive deep into this issue. Alan, could you tell us a bit more about the role of organizations like Democracy International in providing democracy assistance in countries like Afghanistan? What does it mean to say that Afghanistan has elections? Sure. So, I mean, James may also be able to speak to this. Uh, my, my election observation experience has been basically limited to Afghanistan itself. I also spent um, time in 2014 um, watching people argue over whether two check marks were identical enough to be evident of fraud. Uh, in the 2014 presidential election. But like I said, obviously, for a country like Afghanistan, there has been major U.S. engagement over, over the past two decades now. We just passed the 19-year anniversary, I believe, this week of the U.S. intervention. O overall, um, the priorities have been driven by our security concerns, but, um, but also, you know, U.S., uh, a variety of uh, U.S. policymakers, actors, um, and our international allies are, are looking for democracy as sort of a legitimating signal um, as we're making these investments in support of the Afghan state. So, you know, observation missions um, have been one way of, of sort of gauging the fairness of these elections, gauging the degree to which the leaders in these countries, we see them as sort of representative of the people. Um, that said, um, I would say, you know, Afghanistan, you know, U.S. policy towards Afghanistan has certainly not been solely dependent on elections or, or democracy. Um, you know, again, our security priorities have been the primary driver. So for me, it's been a chance to sort of uh, look at some of the undercovered, um, perhaps, uh, aspects of our relationship. But I think for Afghanistan, the the election is important. It's, uh, you know, at its basic level, it's maybe something we take granted here, but but it's basic level, it's a proposition for, you know, how should power be distributed in a country? And in Afghanistan, certainly, there's quite active competition and contestation and conflict over, over whether the election process uh, and the outcome of that process should be the determining factor or whether other factors uh, should determine that. And Colin, you know, one thing that listeners may not know is A, that, you know, since the U.S. invasion in 2001, um, after the bond process uh, starting in 2004 and 2005, Afghanistan actually has had elections and continue to have elections um, as recently as last year as well. And the U.S. has played an important role uh, in supporting that through democracy assistance. Um, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about why or how you see the very specific support for elections as being within this larger strategic framework. That is, you know, the United States has obviously been heavily involved for two decades in Afghanistan um, for its own security, but how should we think about election support specifically as being a strategic goal for the U.S. government, as well as hopefully a goal that the Afghan people support? Sure. I mean, here I think it's probably important to sort of disentangle the U.S. government as not a unitary actor. So parts of the U.S. government, State Department, USAID have missions to support democracy, democratization, support elections, provide, I mean, Afghanistan is still to this day very highly dependent on international funding so providing the funding to for just the basic administration of an election so uh you know that is 
that is important to parts of U.S. policy towards Afghanistan. And again, in terms of, you know, talking about back home to, to a domestic audience, this is not to say that, that we have only ever had partnerships with democratic countries around the world. Certainly that's not the case. But I think particularly, um, you know, around the mid-2000s with the uh, first sort of elections, this was seen as a major sort of signal perhaps by the Bush administration, both pushing for this, being able to point to a democratically elected partner in Kabul, similarly in Iraq and, and maybe elsewhere. So, uh, you know, I think I can, make a, I can make a case, I think, that also it, it makes sense from a strategic perspective um, with elections providing sort of a degree of stability um, and, and a means of sort of uh, balancing competing political interests in a country that in a way that hopefully could be could be balanced without uh, resort to violence but i think you know again it's a the the u.s government uh, is definitely a multipolar entity and for a lot of parts of the u.s government the chief concern at the end of the day is still international terrorism and to to some degree uh, the taliban insurgency and, and sort of threats against the government itself so i wouldn't say that while elections have been important i also wouldn't say that given Afghan political uh, leader or, or political faction, their sort of relationship to the electoral process and, and that sort of electoral legitimacy, it can be important, but I wouldn't say it's been the only determinant of, of our relationship with them either. Sure, and Bree, given your expertise in, in international relations and international security, I think for a lot of Americans, when they kind of learn about the U.S. democracy assistance programs like election support. And it could be a country that they're heavily involved with, like Afghanistan, or it could just be aid that they give to a country that they're not as close with, um, just in terms of democracy assistance. You know, I think the, the cynic would say, well, what is that money really going to? Do those people want democracy? Are they ready for elections? Or a different type of cynic could say exactly the point that Colin is making is that no, it actually is money worth uh, is money well spent because it actually pursues the strategic aims of the United States. But is that the only way to think about the position of democracy assistance in broader U.S. foreign policy? Like, is any of this just because certain leaders or certain parts of the government really just are doing it because they think it's right? That's a great question. I think there have been a few different phases in how the U.S. thinks about democracy assistance and its strategic objectives. There's a Cold War era where the U.S. is doing some democracy assistance, but some of that is more about electing leaders aligned with U.S. interests than a sort of genuine promotion of free and fair elections. And then in the 90s and early 2000s especially, we have an era that's very influenced by this idea that democracies don't go to war with each other, where we have people within presidential administrations who are arguing that through the promotion of democracy, we can have a safer world. And now I would say we're sort of in a third era where I think policymakers are strategically interested in some of the more discrete benefits of democracy. Um, one of those is that democracy allows for orderly transitions between different factions, different ideological groups. Another is that democracy is typically associated with stronger human rights and stronger public goods provision because democracy provides voters with an opportunity to hold governments accountable for um, poor conduct. So I think that there is both sort of um, a history of a strategic commitment to democracy promotion that has some cynical and uncynical components, but there also is sort of a sincere values-driven component. 
And on this question of a peaceful transfer of power, I mean, Colin, a lot of listeners may not realize that that actually has occurred at the presidential level in Afghanistan because of democratic elections. In the in the 2014 presidential election, um, Hamid Karzai basically, did, you know, he had term limits. He didn't run, and Ashraf Ghani was elected. and And there were problems with that election, but it was for I think the first time in a very long time a peaceful transfer of power in Afghanistan. Um, could you say a little bit about? kind of where you see things recently over the last 10 years headed in Afghanistan around elections and um, political party development and how things are going? Sure. I mean, so I think it is it is true that the 2014 elections were um, were an important sort of milestone in terms of transferring executive power. That said, I think my my perspective on it is that elections are still, I mean, again, sort of at the end of the day, what is an election? It's an argument that among the varying sort of systems by which you determine who holds political power in the country, you say we should count up a bunch of votes and whoever gets whatever formula for counting the votes, the most votes, they should be the one in charge. Uh, the Afghan political system, the pre it's a very centralized system, at least formally in terms of the powers of the presidency. So it has the potential to be a really winner-take-all sort of result, which really raises the stakes for the completing political interests. So we did see uh, we did see a transfer of power under Karzai, but I wouldn't say among the various competing political factions there's any kind of firm consensus in elections. I mean, certainly if you expand sort of the formal, the participants in the formal political system, if you expand that outward to include the Taliban, who are of course a major uh, a major political faction and a major actor in the country. So I think, you know, we did have, uh, we, we have had uh, over the years, uh, several, um, several parliamentary and presidential elections. Um, but this most recent one, um, you know, we saw probably the, the lowest levels of turnout since, since 2004, since the beginning of sort of the post 2001 political system, probably below 20% turnout as measured by registration and, and registration itself, probably less than half the, the eligible population, large areas of the country where there was no voting, either because centers were closed or just no centers were planned to begin with. And this has resulted in an electorate that's increasingly concentrated in sort of the the urban centers where where the government control is strongest and, and it is able to administer these elections. So in terms of questions of who is represented by this this system? At the one level, it's given all the challenges, and I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to diminish the challenges of attempting to hold an election in a war zone. But also the outcome of that election, you know, the, the winners are going to claim their mandate, of course. But um, but there are you know it's it's potentially a fairly small segment of the population, and certainly the other participants in in Afghan politics, whether they're candidates, whether they're other political factions, um, whether they are external powers um, or armed groups like the Taliban, they, they are all bringing to bear their own various competing claims uh, of legitimacy. And so if the goal of, of elections is to sort of establish a consensus that this is how we are going to compete with each other, I would not say that, that Afghanistan has reached um, that consensus yet. Colin, you've mentioned some of the ways this process might not be representative and might feed into sort of tension over legitimacy. Uh, one thing I'd be very curious about is what those people who do participate in the voting process see is at stake in their voting decisions. What is 
uh, driving them to go vote? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, you know, I, I should caveat this report and, and, and my analysis. I am stuck doing this um, from, you know, many thousands of miles away uh, in the most recent election. So um, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, looking under the streetlight where, where I can see in terms of the available data uh, that's released by the Election Commission. But I think, um, you know, public opinion research in Afghanistan is fairly limited, um, at least uh, stuff that's been released publicly. I, I think there, the, the results uh, this time uh, in the election were fairly polarized in terms of it, uh, although many candidates contested, um, it was essentially um, a rerun of, of the 2014 election with uh, the incumbent president, Ashraf Ghani, and, and Abdullah Abdullah, the runner-up. Um, again, being the two main candidates, and and certainly they, uh, their support um, was uh, fairly geographically polarized. So, in terms of what you know, I, I I don't think I can speak with confidence in terms of what an Afghan voter is necessarily necessarily hoping to get out of out of their participation in the process. Certainly, um, it involves a risk in some areas um, to to attempt to cast their vote. So, so it is an important political process in Afghanistan. I wouldn't want to suggest that it's all for show, but also I would, I mean, I think part of the reason why it is important again is, is that at least formally the, the powers of appointment um, that belong to the presidency are quite substantial. So, uh, so it, it is fairly significant impact on, on your access to political power, potentially, if depending on whether your faction, um, they're, they're not particularly strongly institutionalized political parties in Afghanistan, but, but those factions that, that gain access um, through, through the process, um, it, it can be a big deal in terms of access to power and access to the legitimacy of being able to say to the international community, I am the president of, of Afghanistan, which particularly as we're considering peace talks and, and those sorts of issues right now, um, that that's an important uh, aspect of it as well, that, that sort of international claim to legitimacy. Um, another thing I'm curious about is, I know that you've both done some very interesting work in figuring out whether vote tallies reflect reality. Uh, and that seems like a very significant challenge in fledgling democracies. But recently, a lot of my domestic elections policy friends have become very interested in, okay, in the aftermath of a vote, how can we tell if the tally is correct? And what would signs of fraud or deception look like? So I was curious if there were any lessons from your work on Afghanistan that might be applicable in the US or in other contexts in terms of detecting electoral fraud. James, do you want to speak to that or? Sure, on that point, I mean, there's a sense in which Afghanistan does it better. Let me just describe how Afghanistan does it that I think is better than the United States is, first of all, Afghanistan has a single national election for president and parliament. It occurs all at once and it's managed centrally, which is true of most countries. It's not true of the United States because the United States has 50 different states and counties within those states, about 10,000 total election jurisdictions. So I think that's part of it. And that can be a good and a bad thing. It can be a bad thing if the incumbent government is able to use that centralization to influence the election commission, but it can also be a good thing because it helps sort of have a, a uniformity of process nationwide, which is what the, the US lacks right now. Another thing that Afghanistan does well, which is also true of a lot of countries, but not true of the United States, is they give you a polling station level vote count with vote tallies that are posted for public view. Citizens can see it, voters can see it, election administrators can see it, and candidates can see it of the vote count at the level of the polling station. 
And so you have an original vote tally then at that level of the polling station that if anything happens further up the process of aggregation at the provincial level or at the national level, and there's questions or disputes over the final uh, jurisdiction of what the vote count was at, at a polling station, one of the technologies you have to use in Afghanistan if you were to audit that polling station is simply to go back and look at the original copy of the tally. In the United States, we don't all, it depends on the jurisdiction, but we don't always have the ability to look at the original vote count uh, at the level. We don't have polling stations, for instance, in, in, in Washington or Oregon because people vote by mail. But even in states that still have polling stations, it's not always the case that returns are posted or auditable at the level of the polling center, which is what you really want if there's ever a question about what that vote tally might be. And so I think that's always one of the things that I pressed very hard for US election administrators is the ability to do an audit much better than they can. And in fact, you know, it's not unprecedented in Afghanistan. Colin mentioned at the beginning that there was a vote audit of every single ballot box. It was almost every single ballot box um, in 2014 when there were allegations of fraud on both sides. They were able to actually go back and look at the original tallies, the original ballots from every single polling station, and then try to come up with a corrected result when there was allegations of fraud. Yeah, so I think the only, I mean, I, I, that's true in terms of the, I mean, for, again, for me as an outside observer, being able to get down to that level of granularity is, is very useful. Um, you know, there are also challenges with it in terms of reaching consensus on, uh, through the audit process. There was also an audit process for the 2019 presidential election, um, about five and a half percent, I think, of the vote was invalidated. They instituted biometric voter verification controls, um, which I think we could probably say um, helps gain some confidence in the accuracy. Basically, first of all, they sort of, you're registered at your polling station. So you come in and you have a basically proof that I'm registered here on your ID card. But then before you cast, before you receive your ballot to cast your ballot, the polling staff um, at, the, at the booth are supposed to uh, basically take fingerprints, take a photo of you, um, and this sort of biometric signature package generates a sticker that is then applied to the ballot that is placed into the box. So in theory, all ballots in the box should have that sticker that is proof that it matches a, a real person, and then the digital signatures from the biometric information are also supposed to be centralized up to the, to the national level and uh, basically deduplicated to, to look for evidence of, of duplicate biometric signatures. Now, that's how it was supposed to work in sort of an ideal case. In practice, it was very contentious. This is the first um, election Afghanistan has done that, that has uh, sort of tried to fully enforce these criteria. And I think, again, it's, it's potentially a increased degree of confidence in the integrity of the results, but it also has implications for the access to the process, which again, um, was was already sort of constrained, you know. Again, if you're if you're not registered in advance, uh, if you can't make it to your specific assigned polling station, there is not like same day registration options. And you know, for um, particularly uh, some parts of the country, uh, there were sort of concerns raised about the degree to which Afghan women would be comfortable having pictures taken of them. And and we did see, and I I can't say to what degree this is sort of evidence of effective fraud detection or evidence of potential disenfranchisement, but of the polling stations where women cast their votes, 
polling stations are segregated by male or female voters, they did have a higher rate of invalidation than male polling stations. So, um, but, but then beyond that, sort of at the political level, um, unfortunately, um, you know, we, these, technical, uh, these technical reforms, they do potentially help increase transparency, but they don't necessarily generate um, full political buy-in. Um, so so the, uh, in this case, Abdullah Abdullah was the runner-up and largely rejected again, um, as he did in 2014, the outcome of the, of the results. And, and ultimately, um, Ghani was upheld as the winner, uh, incumbent President Ghani, but Abdullah uh, ultimately was brought into government um, in sort of a power-sharing negotiation outside the electoral process. And certainly during the election campaign was sort of very active in challenging um, all of these, uh, all of these measures that were supposed to be put in place as safeguards. Let me let me get you guys to to react on this biometric thing because here's where I think the United States is never going to sort of adopt something like that. The first reason is the voter the uh, importance of proving your identification when you vote has been weaponized in the United States and has been used as a method of voter suppression. But I think Colin, what you just described, I think would never be adopted in the United States because Amer Americans hear that and just think it sounds like Big Brother. Like they just don't like the idea of the government having that. Kind Kind of information. You know, I don't know if most Americans are aware of the fact that it's pretty easy to find out if a person has voted in the United States in publicly available records, not who they voted for, but if they voted. Bree, do you think Americans would ever adopt anything like that biometric identification in their own elections, even if it does help prevent fraud? Uh, I agree that I think that would be very challenging to adopt in the U.S. context. It seems like an area where the U.S. is very culturally different from many other countries. We see that, for instance, with hotels in Europe requiring passports when you check in or uh, license plate campaigns in many different cities, I think are all things that most uh, voters in the U.S. feel fairly uncomfortable with. Well, and what is we've that? seen What's that as... Oh, um, you know, to reduce congestion, some cities have had policies where if you have an odd numbered license plate, you can drive into the city this day and an even numbered license plate, you can drive into the city on another day. And they've had sort of camera verification of that. And even though, of course, we do have cameras that look at speeding and if people skip tolls in the US, I think people would be very uncomfortable with sort of an increase in surveillance, even just surveillance of autos. And I think when we've seen efforts to introduce national ID laws in the US, there's been a lot of backlash sort of across the political spectrum to that. So I agree that something we're very culturally uncomfortable with. Um, obviously, uh, some of the folks who work on blockchain and other technologies have been trying to come up with less biometric discrete voting identifiers, but I think we're a fairly long way from something like that being adopted. I would just say, um, I think that sounds right. Uh, but, and, and just also to reiterate the point that, that this was also contested in Afghanistan as well. Um, I think ultimately it, the fact that the, the opposition um, in this case was pushing for it and did receive sort of support from the international community, which has been sensitive to sort of um, reports of, of fraud in past Afghan elections. But, but I do think, you know, uh, there, there are, um, you know, there are potentially um, civil liberties concerns uh, involved. And, and just if you, again, sort of the question of 
um, who, who gets to vote, who is able to sort of undertake the, the requirements to register and, and get a national ID card and also just the time and, and risk involved. Um, those sorts of controls over those sorts of processes do shape your electorate and, and potentially shape the outcome of your elections. So it's definitely not uncontested in Afghanistan either, although at least for this past election, uh, there, there ultimately was consensus that they would uphold this as a requirement generally. Colin, one of the things you talked about, which I think is really important and does sort of maybe have a mirror in the United States is, you know, Afghanistan has continued to have elections since the transition, the overthrow of the Taliban and the first elections in 2004. But pretty much since 2009, 10, then in 2014, and then again in 2018, 19, we see there being at a granular level, you know, stories of fraud or tallies being stolen or problems with voter access or biometric. And it kind of, once it all adds up, means that neither side are really happy with the outcome and it's contested. And then a lot of times the way it's resolved is actually these sort of elite bargains. And I think your report does a really good job of kind of revealing the nature of that in Afghan politics. And so, for instance, in 2014, even after the um, UN mandate, the, the, the vote audit in 2014, you still had this sort of pact afterwards where both sides of the election, Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah, um, Ashraf Ghani was the president and brought Abdullah into his cabinet for sort of the equivalent of something like executive power sharing. And that's occurred now in 2019. So my question is big, big picture. How do we think about democracy if even if all these people vote, it's always kind of elite bargaining and strategies that at the end of the day are what really determine the outcome? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think I would I would have to say that Afghanistan is probably an outlier case to some degree, but I think this this probably um, applies to other cases as well. But, um, you know, when you have sort of serious competition um, between, you know, various political factions, and they see, you know, potentially, you know, for some of them, it's potentially a life and death issue, you know, even beyond below that, it's, it's serious sort of stakes um, of a political competition. And you know, at the end of the day, um, if I'm a sort of rival Afghan party, um, and I have access to sort of other sources of uh, power beyond the ballot box, um, maybe that's force of arms, maybe that's claim to some sort of religious or ethnic authority, um, maybe that's, uh, you know, uh, an alliance uh, with major international or at least regional um, power. You know, the, the, the Afghan political system is very fractious. It's very multipolar, you know, despite the, within the formal process, despite the fact that the presidency is very uh, centralized and, and does hold a lot of authority, it's certainly not, you know, a dominant uh uh, you know, state. And so when when you have this sort of system and this sort of competition, unfortunately, I mean, not unreasonably, I think you're going to have competition that continues, you know, the, the election is an inflection point. It's potentially a chance to um, sort of reshuffle the, the formal seat of power. So it's certainly something that people are going to be engaged in. But particularly in the past year as the United States has sort of, or year or two as the United States has sort of shifted its engagement with Afghanistan and really um, started it on this process of negotiating an agreement with the Taliban and, and moving to seriously draw down on U.S. forces, which have been 
um, supporting the Afghan government. You know, the 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 various actors are are not going to look to a difference of of frankly a very a very small number of votes um, cast in a very narrow part of the uh, segment of the country. This is not going to, or at least to date, they have not sort of agreed that sort of okay we can we can set step back until the next election cycle and and try again then they are going to use every available avenue to to try and ensure that they uh retain some sort of representation or some sort of access to power who's the they in that sentence i would say it's all actors in afghanistan you know it's it's the incumbent government it's the opposition within the formal system uh it's also you know insurgent groups um armed groups. Um, again, they're not taking part in the formal electoral system, but they're certainly in, in the informal uh, processes, diplomatic processes or, or armed processes. They are, um, they're not coming to say, you know, I should be in charge because I won 50 plus one percent of the vote. Um, but, but they will certainly, you know, make whatever case they need to that, that they should be very least at the table, if not controlling the table. Um, and where does that leave voters? Because I think that's, I, I think, first of all, that's a question that I always get when I talk about my experience um, doing election observation, which is, uh, you know, what, what do Afghan voters think about all of this? But I think that's now a question that we confront in the United States, because I think, you know, we're a lot, millions of people are going to vote on November 3rd. But I think a lot of us think that the actual outcome will be more determined by legislative wrangling, by legal maneuvers and things like that. And so where does that leave the voter in Afghanistan? Where does that leave the voter in America then if we all turn out and do our duty and we vote, but the actual outcome is not really a reflection of that always. It's more a reflection of the ways in which maybe democracy or elections are being used to put a stamp on a system that really is still elite driven and not really, you know, the, the outcomes that we get aren't really reflective of the popular will. I mean, I just speaking for myself here, I think that I take more of a organizational analytical frame or like collect, I mean, looking at elections as basically a collective action issue. So um, at the individual level, at the individual voter level, yes, it matters, certainly what voters' goals are. But I guess I see it as, as mostly a question of you know how can how can elites, political activists, or um, cadres, or whatever you want to call them, um, how can they sort of mobilize voters to take part in this process? And that's an important question. I, I guess I'm probably coming at it more from from the elite level and from the sort of organizational level or, or political faction sort of level, just because I see those as probably the more, the more driving, the larger drivers of, of political activity, unless you're talking on sort of the margins of, of an individual case. I tend to be sympathetic to the argument that individual voters need to feel like their vote matters in order to want to vote. And that the more legitimacy is negotiated through non-electoral processes, the more disinclined people become to vote. Um, obviously, that's been a very heated discourse in the US over the past few weeks. Um, and I think it has merit. I think uh, economists and uh, political economists tend to sort of focus on how voting is always irrational and it's always an act of collective action. 
but I do think a lot of voters see their decision to vote as expressive. And if voting isn't a true form of voice, if the process is then negotiated through courts or through the legislature or through war, it diminishes the extent to which that expressive vote has value. Not only do I agree with you and think that's true in, a, in, in the United States, um, I have a paper with a co-author, Daniel Jung, who's a, a professor of political science at Emory University, about this in Afghanistan, actually, hmm. where we find that one of the motivations for people turning out is exactly what you said, which is the sort of community's need to show that it is participating in this exercise. Now, the cynical view of that is that it's all very coercive. You know, people are turning out to vote simply because they've been forced to do so. But that's not actually true. I mean, our, our paper uses data from the 2010 election. And Colin, I take your point that turnout is perhaps declining and people are getting more cynical. Um, I've done other work on, on the effects, the direct effects of violence on turnout. But in the paper with Danielle, we find that there is this idea of sort of the need to um, show that you are participating in this exercise publicly. And if you're not, the reason why we posit in the paper is that you kind of think that you might get sanctioned. You know, you might get the finger wag or you might get the dirty look at the local level because you're not participating in the community's life. You know, and this, and, and we, we did our study with the parliamentary elections, which are highly localized. You know, parliamentary candidates typically get a lot of support from their village or the area surrounding it, but not really beyond that. And so I think that that aspect of Afghan politics is, is definitely there. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I'd, I'd definitely be interested to read that paper. I mean, one thing to note about the 2019 elections is, is this was the first election that was just a national election. They normally, uh, in the past, they have held provincial council elections. There's provincial councils, parliament, and then the presidency. They've held provincial councils uh, at the same time as the presidency, and this time that didn't happen. So it was just a national level election. And so possibly one explanation for the drop in turnout is that the national level political actors just either didn't have the time, resources, or interest in like reaching down to those local uh, local groups uh, and, and trying to mobilize them. And so that may be one factor or those groups uh, didn't, didn't feel they had perhaps access to the national level. And so that may be uh, unlike in past elections when you had local candidates. So that may be one factor that in addition to security and other issues that did contribute to a drop in turnout this time. One thing I'm curious about sort of building on the concern around security is this relationship between violence and turnout or motivation to vote. Uh, there's been increased concern in the U.S. about violence or voter intimidation around the election. I hope and assume it will be in no way comparable to what has happened in Afghanistan, but it does seem like there's reason for some concern. What has kind of been the relationship between violence and voter intimidation and turnout in Afghanistan? I think I should probably go to James on this one because unfortunately for the 2019 elections, I, I have not yet been able to find a particularly detailed data set on, on sort of violent incidents to, to be able to really drill down into that. Um, so, but James, I know you've done work on this in past elections, if you want to speak to that, maybe. Sure. And I agree. I hate to be the guy on the podcast that says I have a paper on this, but I, I, I have a paper on this uh, with, uh, with Luke Condra at University of Pittsburgh uh, and Andrew Shaver and Austin Wright. Um, and they and in the paper, we actually asked this question because the thing that people may not realize is violence can be both motivating and demotivating. 
right? Like uh, politicians often use violence or intimidation or the threat of it actually to mobilize their supporters. Um, and some research has suggested that that actually works. Alternatively, kind of the more intuitive um, hypothesis is that the threat of violence on election day would deter people from voting. Um, and that's kind of the narrative of what the Taliban tries to do in Afghanistan or has done um, in the elections we look at in our paper. And what's interesting is for us, what we found is it's, it, it's not that, the interesting finding I think is not that the threat of violence or the areas where the Taliban is strong, incredibly able to threaten violence deters turnout. That is true and it's not the, the more interesting part, it's how the Taliban does it. And what we find in our paper is that the Taliban does it in a very strategic and selective way because what they want to do is they want to attack elections specifically because that undermines the legitimacy of the government. It, it undermines the system and democracy for all the reasons the colonists said. Um, but at the same time, the Taliban is an insurgent group that is known to try to avoid civilian casualties in its attacks. So it has a dilemma on election day where it wants to disrupt the actual election itself at the same time that it knows all these people are outside, you know, moving around and voting. And so what we find in the paper is that it's highly strategic and, and focused, um, meaning that the, the Taliban will try to hit polling stations, but early in the morning before uh, voters are there. You know, or they'll hit roads that voters are likely to access to try to get to a polling station, but before the election when not as many people are likely to be there. And so it's a, it's a, it's a hard question to answer in the sense that it's not just the case that the threat of violence keeps everybody away. A lot of people still turn out to vote, but even the violent incidents that do occur in the campaign period and on election day themselves are highly strategic and meant to influence the process in ways that I think a lot of people probably find pretty surprising. That's very interesting. Bree, one of the things that has, uh, I guess, I don't want to say upset me because there are good reasons for it, but I guess as a person who studies international relations has uh, made me a little bit disinterested in this election is just the complete lack of discussion of foreign policy in the campaign, and in particular on Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan was a huge important issue in the 2004 campaign, the uh, 2008 campaign, and even in 2016 with Trump promising to pull troops out of Afghanistan if he were elected. Now that hasn't happened, and I should add the qualification that during the vice presidential debate, uh, Kamala Harris actually did bring up the Russian bounties on American soldiers in Afghanistan. But just the, you know, foreign policy and the war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan have just been central pillars of American campaigns since Bush's reelection in 2004. And now there's just the complete absence of it. So I wonder if you can kind of talk about your view on that and how you think about it. Sure, that's a great question. Um, and I've certainly noticed the same thing over the past year. Um, I want to briefly talk about whether this is new, why it's going on, and then what the effects of it are. So I think first there's this question of, is this really unique? And I think there is a belief that American voters just don't care that much about foreign policy. And even in the 2004 election, when foreign policy issues are very foregrounded, there's a rich debate over how much Afghanistan and national security mattered as compared to social issues in that election. 
Alternatively, I think in the 2016 campaigns, we actually saw a lot of contrast uh, in both parties' primaries in foreign policy positions, suggesting that voters did see those as sort of differentiating positions among the candidates, which was very interesting. Um, and there was some more robust foreign policy discussion during some of the uh, primary debates this cycle, too. I think the question of whether or not American voters care about foreign policy can be a little bit dangerous because one role of campaigns is that campaigns probably shape and inform voters. Voter preferences and all these things are not totally fixed. So the abandonment of an important issue out of the assumption that voters won't care can be a bit of a vicious cycle. In 2020, I think our sort of conjoined domestic crises make it very, very difficult to get voter attention. We're just in such a, a quick news cycle that I think there's greatly diminished focus on everything. It did seem, in addition to uh, Senator Harris's comments during the vice presidential debate, that Vice President Pence also would have liked to focus more on ISIS and the war on terror. But it was difficult to imagine uh, voters watching the debate, wanting the debate to go in that direction just because there are so many other competing priorities right now. But to get at your dismay, um, it's certainly something that I share. It is the choices that America makes in terms of foreign policy will affect pretty much every other country in the world. So it's definitely an area where I would like to see much more contrast and robust discussion between candidates so voters can have a strong sense of what they think and how their views are different. And while uh, there are certainly some very detailed proposals on websites, I don't think we've had a, really a moment or a speech during the campaign that's clarified some of the differences in their positions for voters yet. And I don't anticipate that will change over the next few weeks. Well, let me say where my question is wrong, though, which is that I think the way foreign policy is, is influencing this campaign is not foreign policy as we traditionally understand it, but the foreign influence in hacking our election. And so I think there is this huge cloud of Russian interference and in, in changing, you know, in, in trying to influence the outcome as they did in 2016 that's being now sort of wrapped up in discussions about election integrity, but aren't really seen as questions of sort of standard foreign policy. And of course, we kind of know what Trump's foreign policy with Russia is. We know that Biden's would probably be very different. But Colin, this is one thing that the United States shares with Afghanistan. You, you mentioned all the different countries that always have their their uh, finger in the pie or the pot uh, in Afghanistan, not just the United States, uh, Russia, previously the Soviet Union, but obviously Pakistan, Iran, India. Afghanistan can never have an election that outside influence is not important to it. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly true. Um, I guess the, the parallel here, and, and speaking not as sort of a voter who's following the elections, but not as a specialist in sort of the US side of it, I think, uh, I guess the, the potential parallel here, um, and, and potentially a, a concerning one is whatever the sort of source of dispute, uh, and, and sort of whether it's sort of due to outside intervention, whether it's due to sort of disputes between the um, disputes over sort of technical processes. At the end of the day, you know, I think the lesson from Afghanistan is you can you can have some potentially fairly impressive technical uh, controls, but at the end of the day, it's a question of how are the main competing political factions going to 
respond to those and is there uh, is there a consensus around sort of the norms of competition and the and the rules of the game in Afghanistan that that does not seem to be the case and so that does potentially open up um, avenues for intervention or, or avenues for uh, for potentially uh, in the worst cases, as unfortunately Afghanistan sees, uh, you know, civil war and, and sort of insurgency, um, because there is not this consensus over, um, you know, how are we going to share political power within this country that has multiple uh, multiple centers of political power. And, you know, uh, again, I'm not a uh, U.S. elections expert, but certainly, uh, you know, to the degree to which, you know, Russian interference in 2016 or, or other forms of disinformation um, are, are impacting sort of the political dynamics here and the electoral dynamics here. I think, you know, a good part of that is, is determined by, you know, what is the what is the response of the political parties, of their leadership, um, you know, to what degree are we uh, resilient internally and, and committed to sort of process that, you know, at the end of the day, we might, whichever side might lose uh, this round, but but we're willing to accept that and, and willing to sort of anticipate a future opportunity in which we can uh, contest peacefully again. Certainly Afghanistan, that's been that's been a real challenge and, and, and the challenge the, the political parties um, and, and conflict parties in Afghanistan face now. And um, I guess I would hope uh, that the U.S. has, has uh, is more resilient to this, but I guess I would say it's been fairly sobering for the past few years um, to see um, how we are perhaps not that unique. Bree, I don't want to push the comparison too far, but what are your thoughts? Is America a fledgling democracy? And um, is, is the comparison warranted? At least now, I mean, maybe not. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, these things change, but I'm saying, do, do we, are we starting to feel this sort of fever pitch where exactly what Colin just described is sort of how things are going to get sorted out in this country after this election? I think that's a really great question. This does feel like a different and critical year for it, but then we're rel it's relatively recent that suffrage has been universal in the U.S., Voter intimidation and disenfranchisement has always been occurring in the U.S. to sort of different degrees. And then also we have a court-litigated election in 2000. So I think uh, fledgling might not be the right term, but there is this sort of problem of how much undermining of faith in the American electoral system has to occur for the system to still work and for people to be willing to participate in the process. Um, and this seems like a really especially critical year for that question. I'm trying to think what the opposite of fledgling is, but I do think this might be a year where we wind up getting a clear picture of the state of decay of U.S. democracy. Well, fledgling can have two meanings. It can be young or it can be um, not yet formed. So, so I think, you know, the, the United States is not a young democracy in terms of its age, but is it unformed? Is it imperfect? Is it not out of the gate? And that's where I think, and, and I think you're right. Yeah. It's like, what's the, what's, the, what's the reverse side of that in terms of state of decay? Well, the nice thing about that other meaning of fledgling is there's definitely some room for some optimism there, because if uh, the type of fledgling democracy the U.S. is is one that's not fully formed, that means there is formation work to do. 
over the next uh, few decades. Bree, I think that point is always the point that I, until now, have tried to make to Americans when they ask me about Afghanistan, which is that the United States has never been and was never a perfect democracy um, for all the reasons that you said. And even today, you know, it's imperfect. And, e you know, even if we were to go back 20 years ago, okay, you know, before kind of all the recent stuff, it was still the, the case that it was imperfect because there had to be a court uh, adjudication of an election. But the United States is always evolving. It's hopefully improving. I think it has improved in a lot of ways, but it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not teleological. It may not be, we may not, may not ever get to a point of, of quote unquote perfect democracy. And so when people look at Afghanistan, it's like, you know, it took a long time to even really get out of the gate in the United States. It's probably going to take Afghanistan a long time as well. And people just don't seem to have a sense of that. Like it takes a long time for these things, these institutions to really solidify. It took, you know, more than 100 years in the United States, and then it took 100 years beyond that. And that's being generous. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And especially if a critical aspect of elections is sort of faith in their integrity and faith in the institutions that protect them. That seems like something that's very difficult to generate in a generation, even if the electoral processes go fairly smoothly and it's a best case scenario. So by way of wrap up, Colin, what are your projections then for Afghanistan? What should we be looking at and thinking about for the next you know, five, 10, 20 years? Oh, ah, that's a challenging one. I mean, I would say, you know, right now, the, for the first time uh, in the past 20 years, um, there are representatives from the Taliban and the Afghan government. Um, fairly, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's perfectly representative, certainly, but um, they are at least meeting um, and, and attempting to talk through what would be a process of uh, reconciliation or settlement. I, I think, you know, my, my best case scenario is that that process does move forward and that whether it's a consensus that, you know, we're going to share power on the basis of elections or whether it's a consensus that we are going to create some other formula for distributing sort of power and representation that decides do manage to, you know, recognize the serious, serious costs that Afghanistan has faced for this um, uncertainty and, and, and this disagreement over sort of the fundamental question of uh, control and, and authority in the country. I would not place any bet as to how that will actually turn out. Certainly um, to date, there has been resistance on all sides to, to make concessions, but also they haven't been sort of forced to uh, do so perhaps yet. The, the US engagement with Afghanistan, um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty there partly for the, uh, the reasons that we talked about sort of in terms of this, this just is not sort of a top priority concern um, for US policymakers in the way that it was when I started my career 12 years ago. And so the question of to what degree the US remains engaged in this, to what degree um, the, the US uh, retains an interest in supporting uh, an Afghan government through this process and, and coming out with some sort of consensus position um, and to what degree that's possible um, in, in a society and a polity that is very polarized, um, again, both within the formal political system, but also just outside armed actors. Um, so I think it's a very, it's a very daunting challenge facing, facing Afghan political leaders right now. I, I'd like to be optimistic, but, but I, I don't think I can make any predictions at this point in terms of how 
how it will turn out long term. Yeah, I think it's really tricky right now to assess what how the US is going to see its role over the next decade or couple decades and what the role of Afghanistan and democracy promotion more broadly will be in all of that. It seems like um, a lot of foreign policy advisors on both campaigns in quite different ways believe we're in or entering an era of great power competition. There are a few different ways that can play out. Um, democracy promotion could be sort of a Cold War style tool in a very sort of cynical, get the governments that support you elected type way in an era of competition between powerful states. We could also see a return to the idea of competition on values and that through um, fair elections and the ability to select one's government, that's one thing that makes the US have soft power or be deserving of its place as a powerful country. One major tension I see for the US right now is, and James, you alluded to this in the introduction, but it's extremely hypocritical to push for free and fair elections anywhere else in the world without safeguarding them at home. So I think uh, domestic electoral reform is critical as a next step before the U before as the US engages in any sort of election protection or promotion abroad. And I hope that's something that will happen over the next few years. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's a great place to end on the, on the question of is America fledgling democracy? Uh, so thanks a lot, Bree. Thanks a lot, Colin. Thank you. Thanks, this was fun. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.